you have your Bibles, please open them to 2 Chronicles, we'll be starting in chapter 33, verses 21, we'll read through 34, verse 7. It's also printed there for you on page 6 of the bulletin. 2 Chronicles chapter 33, starting in verse 21. Amon was 22 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord as Manasseh his father had done. Amon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh his father had made and served them. And he did not humble himself before the Lord, as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. And his servants conspired against him and put him to death in his house. But the people of the land struck down all those who had conspired against King Amon. And the people of the land made Josiah his son king in his place. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim, the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence and cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made the dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in, all their ruin, in their ruins all around. He broke down the altars and beat the ashram and the images into powder, and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. You may be seated, and as you do so, let us together seek the Lord as we come to his word. Father God, we thank you for your word. It is powerful, it is living, and it is active. As the author of Hebrews tells us, it is capable of dividing even between bone and the marrow. God, would your word do that for us this morning? As we read of these two kings, one wicked, one good, God, may your word expose our hearts. The arrogance that can still so easily cling and the humility that you desire and call for each and every one of us. May I be faithful in preaching and may your people be faithful in hearing by the power of your spirit, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. In case it is not obvious to you this morning, we are no longer in the book of Hebrews. Take a deep breath. We're taking a brief break from Tim's series, Holding Steadfast to Christ, to venture a little bit into the waters of the Old Testament. So over the next five weeks, we're going to be looking at the reign of one king in Judah, King Josiah, found in 2 Chronicles 34 through 35. I'm entitling this series, Josiah the Humble King. And the emphasis on humility in a leader of God's people is fitting, considering right now we are in the midst of nominating men to be leaders here at Covenant. Humility should be a factor as we prayerfully consider those who God may be calling to lead. Passages in places like 1 Peter 5 make that explicitly clear. But beyond formal leadership, humility is a trait that all of us should have as followers of Jesus Christ. James 4.10 printed on the first page of the bulletin applies to each and every one of us sitting here this morning. Humble yourselves before the Lord 
and he will exalt you. The story of Josiah's reign is meant to call God's people once again to humility. We all need it. No one is exempt from it. But this call for humility is not simply for humility's sake. No, the chronicle, the chronicler writing this, has a specific purpose in telling this story of Josiah. Now, for those of you who may not be familiar with the Chronicles or even Kings, those two books offer very similar records of the kings of Israel. They document the kings in Israel starting from Solomon all the way up to and through the exile in 586 AD. And if you were to read the two books together, there would be overlap, there would be repetition. As any of you have embarked on one of those read through the Bible in one year, Second Chronicles is usually where you need just that little bit more of perseverance because you feel like you've just read about Josiah and then a day later you're reading about Josiah again. But there's a difference between the two. Take 1 Kings, for example. It's written for the people of God living in exile to answer the question, how did we get here? And so if you read First and Second Kings, you will notice that what is highlighted is Israel's record of idolatry, rebellion, and wickedness. It tracks the wicked kings just as much as it tracks the good ones. It declares loudly that Israel has forsaken the covenant and the exile was warranted. You should not be surprised that you were in exile. First and Second Chronicles, on the other hand, is written for the people of God getting ready to return from exile, and they're asking the question, well, what do we do now? How should we then live? They need encouragement against complacency as they come back to the land. They need to be held before, have held before them a call to seek the Lord, to humble themselves before him. And so in many ways, the prayer of Solomon that we read of at the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles chapter 7 serves as the main point of the entire Chronicles, first and second. Raymond Dillard writes that it is the programmatic statement of greatest of great importance. And it's a familiar verse for many of us, and unfortunately, it's also a verse that has been misused and abused far too often. For it is where Solomon says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Now this prayer is not for our nation or any earthly nation. It is a prayer for the only nation that bears the name of the Lord, his church. And it contains in it both a blessing, I mean a promise, and a warning. Seeking the Lord brings blessing, that blessing being God's mercy, his forgiveness, and his restoration. But arrogantly refusing to seek him continually turning from him, will bring judgment and woe. So God's people must not, indeed cannot, be complacent or presume upon him and his mercy and his grace. So then every account that we read throughout First and Second Chronicles is either explicitly or implicitly emphasizing either a humble seeking or an arrogant turning from the Lord and the consequences that follow. And so Josiah comes as the last of the faithful ones before exile. 
He is this hopeful figure for the people as they're coming back into the land. Be like Josiah. Humbly seek the Lord. Don't be like Amon, who arrogantly turned from him and reaped disaster. This hope, then, in the character of Josiah, we see here first as we compare him to his father. The two could not be any more different. The contrast couldn't be any starker. For it is in the reigns of these two kings that we are shown that faithfulness to the Lord starts by humbly seeking him. It's faithfulness to the Lord starts by humbly seeking him. And the outline will detail the contrast between these two kings, Amon, Josiah, a father, a son, one faithless, one faithful. The points can be found on page 8 in the bulletin. We'll look at two assessments, two attitudes, and two activities. And we start with two assessments. Before the Chronicle get, gets into the specific details of each man's reign, he provides a general evaluation. It's common that the Chronicler would do this. And we see it in verses 21, 22, and verses 1 and 2. Seeing as Amon is the father, he came first. We'll start with Amon. In verses 21 and 22, it says, And he reigned two years in Jerusalem, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as Manasseh his father had done. To the school-aged among us here this morning, Amon's report card is an F. Gasp. Nobody gets Fs anymore. There's no sugarcoating his reign. There's no bright side we could look at. Two years is an incredibly short period of time. Two years in the history of Israel's kings would signal covenant judgment or curse, not blessing. Strike one. And then on top of that, the deeds in those short two years are described as evil in the sight of the Lord. Strike two. And this phrase is not a, a generic, or it is a generic phrase that's often repeated throughout both 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. But it stresses that failure to follow and uphold the law. It literally means abandoning and forsaking the Lord in his work. And while that would certainly be enough to run with, the writer goes a little bit further into just how bad, just how evil Amon's two-year reign was. He compares him to his father. Amon sacrificed to all the images that Manasseh, his father, had made and served them. Strike three. For all my baseball fans out there. Manasseh's idolatry and evil deeds are described in detail in chapter 33, 1 through 9. I'm not going to read it all, but it's there for you if your Bibles are open. You can simply go back and glance over it. But the summary we find is in verse 9. Where the writer says this, Manasseh led Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem astray to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. That's a jaw-dropping statement. To say that Manasseh led the people of God to do more evil than the nations is significant. The writer is essentially saying that Manasseh led the southern kingdom to look like, worship like, and behave like the Canaanites. The very people they were called to drive out from the land. The very people who had stored up God's wrath and judgment. And Israel was the tool of that wrath and judgment being poured out. 
And what did the Canaanites look like? Abominations, child sacrifice, sorcery, idolatry. All of that seen in Israel under the reign of Manasseh. And then comes Amon, like father, like son. Or to borrow that familiar phrase, the apple does not fall far from the tree. We might even say the apple never fell from the tree. It's still there. Amon's reign, like his father, was evil. It was wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so it's surprising then, and even a little bit refreshing, when we get to the assessment of Josiah, who is Amon's son in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 34. We would expect, humanly speaking, Josiah to be another chip off the old block, just like his good old dad. But instead we read this. And he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Again, to use the picture of a report card, Josiah gets an A. A pretty good, solid A. Not one of those, you know, 91 that maybe got rounded up. No, we're talking a 96, 97. He gets an A. 31 years, while certainly far from an eternity, is only nine shy of what David got. And only a handful of southern kings would reign longer than Josiah. And if length of reign suggests divine blessing, verse 2 certainly cements it. Josiah did what was right. And note, this is not a comparative right. It doesn't say, Josiah did good because, you know what, his dad was so bad that... You can only go up if your dad is, is that bad. No, his right is in the eyes of the Lord according to his standards, according to what he has said is good and right in his law. There's no grading on a curve. Josiah did simply what was good and what was right in the eyes of the Lord. We'll, we will observe in the weeks ahead the extent of his faithfulness as we track the sweeping reforms that Josiah would bring to the southern kingdom. And he would expand it even beyond Jerusalem. He would take it north. But it is worth mentioning just those two descriptive phrases that the writer gives us. When he says, he walked in the ways of David his father and did not turn aside to the left or to the right. True, David was far from perfect. The Youth Sunday School, we're learning that very frankly right now as we are going through 2 Samuel together. But still, even in the midst of David's failure, he is described as the one who had a heart after the Lord's own heart. So walking in David was a good decision for any king of Israel to do. But walking in David would also, or walking like David, would also require staying faithful the whole way through. And that is what that language of turning to the le- not turning from the left or the right is meant to convey. It comes right out of the mouth of Moses. When he spoke to the the generation getting ready to leave the wilderness and enter the promised land. When in Deuteronomy chapter 5 he says this. You shall be careful therefore to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right, to the left. You shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you. That you may live and that it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land that you are to possess. Josiah did this. And this is why in 2 Kings we we hear that writer boldly say there was no king like him, nor did any king arise after him. Josiah's reign, unlike his father's, was good. It was faithful. 
And as we come and we read these two assessments of these two kings, a father and a son, it is good for us, whether we're kings or not, and as far as I know, no one in here is a king. Sorry to burst your bubble if you thought you were. But it's good for us to follow Paul's instructions to the church and to examine ourselves or to look carefully then how you walk. Are the things you do marked by righteousness and obedience? Are they in line with the teachings of God's word, not just the parts that you find easy or not too demanding, but all the parts? Do we worship? Do we live? Do we conduct ourselves according to the instructions of our culture, which is what Israel was guilty of, or according to the clear instructions that God has given us and laid down for us in his word? We are all young, old, married, single, leaders or lay people, parents or children called to walk faithfully, not turning from the left or the right in the ways of our Heavenly Father. And it's good as we come to an assessment like this to, to ask ourselves that question. Where are we at? And to humbly examine ourselves. But along with these two assessments, we also get two attitudes. Amon and Josiah had two completely different postures before the Lord. Again, we start with Amon. It says in verse 22, or 23, And he did not humble himself before the Lord as Manasseh his father had humbled himself. Amon can be described not only as evil, but arrogant. And his arrogance is ultimately where he would stray from his own father, Manasseh. Because Manasseh, if we were to read chapter 33, we would learn, he eventually learned humility. The Babylonians came and took him away in chains, and he got his act together. It says that at that moment he entreated the favor of the Lord and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. You see, Manasseh saw his sin, he saw its consequences, and he humbled himself. And the result of his humbling led to a small-scale revival and spiritual resurgence at the end of his reign. And it is highly likely that Amon probably witnessed just a little bit of that revival. It included an increased military strength in Israel as well as spiritual devotion. And so if he were to have seen the wickedness of his father the humility of his father and the turning of his father's ways, only a fool would look at his father and say, you know what, I'm going to go back to the ways of your wickedness. But we see that Amon is such a fool. Where there should have been clear remorse over his sin, there's none. Where there should have been shame over the acts that he was doing, over the acts that he was leading the people in doing, there was none. Where there should have been a desperate pleading with the Lord to pour out his mercy, there was none. Instead, Amon continued in, reveled in, and ultimately died in his attitude of arrogance before his covenant Lord, the true king of God's people. And so his destruction at the hand of these conspirators, whoever they were, whatever their motives, was directly the fruit of the pride of his idolatrous and unrepentant heart. And so before we, we quickly jump to 
to the more positive attitude, we must place the mirror of God's word before us. Because we too can often be like Amon, living with that arrogant, unrepentant heart. We too can lack remorse over our own sin and our own rebellion that we see day after day. The weekly rhythm that we have here of confessing our sin in worship is certainly meant to build within each of us as we gather and within us as a collective community a humble heart of repentance. And so I pray that as we do this week in and week out, it isn't simply a rote exercise or something without meaning or purpose. It's intended to humble us, for us to come and say, God, we have sinned. We need your mercy and we need your grace. But the truth is that if this weekly demonstration of confession and repentance is your only regular pursuit of repentance over the course of a given week, then may I say that your heart needs to be humbled. Let us not live in such foolish arrogance as Amon when it comes to our sin. Let us be grieved by it. Let us plead for God's mercy. And let us daily repent of it in humility before the Lord. Which then brings me to the second half of this point. Let it move us to have an attitude like that of Josiah, which was marked by humility. Listen to what it says in verse 2 of chapter 34. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of his father, David. And I want to make a pause here and speak directly to our younger people. And I'm not going to put age restrictions on this. So if you think you're young, you can listen in a little bit closely. It is never too early to begin seeking the Lord. There is no age limit or restriction to your ability to pursue the God who created you, loves you, redeemed you, and has entered into covenant with you. Start reading your Bible. If you aren't sure or you can't read very well, ask your parents to do it. Start praying today. If you aren't sure what or how to pray, ask your parents to help you. Or ask anyone you see sitting here this morning to read with and pray with you. They should be glad to do it. Keep coming to church weekly to hear God's word preached and receive, in time, the sacraments. These are critical parts of your pursuit, your beginning to seek the Lord. Your youth is not a hindrance. Carl read from 1 Timothy earlier, where Paul told a young Timothy to set for the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Start to seek the Lord today. And keep seeking him all your days. Don't buy into the lie that there's something out there for you to experience first. Or there's some boxes you need to check off first before you should come and start seeking the Lord. Seek the Lord now. And to our older folks, I would encourage each and every one of us to help them. To fulfill our vows that we make when they've been baptized. 
to come alongside our younger generation and see them raised in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, to set an example for them. And just as they're never too young to seek the Lord, understand that you're never too old to seek the Lord. Keep seeking him all of your days, whether there are few left or many. Now back to Josiah. His attitude of seeking the Lord in is the day compared to his father's night. This idea of seeking is an important idea throughout the first and second chronicles. As one commentator writes, it can be described as the habit of looking to God in every situation. And it is also the attitude which God looks for in those who pray. It is Solomon's prayer at work, humbling themselves, praying and seeking the face of the Lord. All the good kings did this, and all the evil ones failed to in their arrogance. And we see that for Josiah, this seeking was a process. It didn't happen overnight. It began around age 16, the eighth year of his reign, which the idea of an eight-year-old reigning over a kingdom is just mind-boggling. But it didn't really bear fruit Till four years later when he was 20, when he finally was able to rule the kingdom without somebody looking over him. But we see that those humble beginnings of seeking the Lord is what spurred the great revival and reform that we not only see at the end of our passage today, but we're going to see in the weeks ahead. It all started with this humble attitude of seeking the Lord his God. then begs us to ask ourselves, what is it that we are seeking? Are you seeking, first and foremost, the Lord in his kingdom? We have the words of our Savior telling us to do that very thing in Matthew chapter 6. Or is what we're seeking something else? A job or a career, a spouse, a certain status, some certain recognition? Because the truth is, it is very easy for us in our distracted and confused day to seek a myriad of things before or instead of the Lord and his kingdom. But if we are humble, our first pursuit will always be the Lord. For in humility, we will become painfully aware of our need of his strength and his grace. And we will run to him and ask for it and find that he abundantly gives it. And so may all of us, whether old or young, daily, consistently, and humbly, seek the Lord. It is the starting place for our faithfulness as individuals, as spouses, as parents, employees, bosses, leaders, teachers, the list goes on. May we, like Josiah, humble ourselves before the Lord and faithfully seek his face, starting today until the day he calls us home. We see then in our third and final point that these two attitudes culminate in two activities. Both Amon's arrogance and Josiah's humility get them somewhere. There's a destination. For Amon, that destination is not a great place. It is altogether undesirable. Look at the end of what the writer says in verse 23. But this Amon incurred guilt more and more. His increasing arrogance probably gave him a confidence of increasing escaping of guilt, but it really was increasing his guilt. 
And ironically, this phrase, the language here of increasing more and more, is actually the same language that Moses uses in the beginning of Exodus when he talks about how the people of Israel multiplied and filled the nation of Egypt. They grew more and more. And so we're seeing there's a comparison here. Just as the people of Israel filled the land of Egypt with their offspring, Ammon is filling the land of Israel with his evil, with his idolatry, with his wickedness, with his vile practices. And if you were to read the entire books of 1 and 2 Chronicles, you would learn that guilt and God's wrath go hand in hand. Continue to ignore obvious guilt over your sin by refusing to repent, by refusing to seek God's face. Pleading for him for mercy will certainly lead to disaster. And we see Amon's disaster, the increasing guilt led to his own execution in his own bed, the place, the one place where any king would expect to have peace and comfort. And it was all because he refused to repent refused to turn from his sin and humbly seek God. And it's a warning to us. We can't ignore our sin. Even if we think we're getting away with it, it's not the solution. Neither can we hide from it. The guilt remains and left unchecked, we can expect disaster sooner or later. For in... The story of Amon, we see the truth of the proverb that pride indeed goes before destruction. But Josiah once again engages in activities that his father would never have dreamed of or even thought of or even considered or even imagined. And the writer makes it that this act is the first thing Josiah does when when the reins are taken off of him as king. See, for those first 12 years, starting at 8 till 20, Josiah would have ruled with regents, with counselors. They would have instructed him what to do, to do this, don't do that, go this way, don't go that way. But when he turned 20, when he became a man, he was allowed to then take the reins himself. And what is his first act? We see it. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem. Sorry, Siri. To cleanse them. In many ways, Josiah does what the other good kings, his forefathers did. They removed all the altars, the high places, the images. We see this in the likes of Asa, Hezekiah, and even Manasseh. All these places are the places of either false worship, because God's law gave specific instructions on where worship was supposed to happen and what it was supposed to look like, And the people said, we're going to do it our way and any way we please. Those were the high places. And then the other altars are just the place where pagan worship, idolatry is happening. His forefathers removed them, but we see Josiah come and he goes a step further. His predecessors removed them probably by hiding them, taking them down, kind of stashing them away. And we learn in the history of Israel that a removed altar can easily become a renewed altar. But no, Josiah embarks on what I call an altar-destroying, image-smashing, 
idolatry-burning holy war. Again, those are my words, not the Chronicles. He does this in obedience to the Lord, who he has begun to seek and love and serve as both a vivid and tangible depiction of what one commentator calls total annihilation. Josiah holds no, takes no prisoners. He is committed to purging all traces of idolatry, evil, and sin, first and foremost, in Jerusalem. Bethany and I did a much smaller and far less spiritual version of this when we moved into our house about a year ago. We painted almost every room, including the ceilings. One of you is here to help me with that, which I still thank you for. We scrubbed walls, we scrubbed floors, and everywhere else, we purged every speck of dirt that we could. Now, it wasn't because our former owners were filthy. They kept the place neat and tidy. It was to satisfy our own standards of clean, but also to kind of mark this clean break between what was the former owners and what will now be. The Coyles living there with now three children. So let's just say it's not clean anymore. But for Josiah, such a cleansing and a break meant something like what he did had to happen. No altar could be left spared or standing. No image, whether wood or metal, could be left in the people's private possessions, in the nation's public possession. Every vestige of idolatry and abomination had to be wiped away, scorched. And then we see after he purges Jerusalem, he takes his cleansing trip on the road. He goes north. These are places that were likely under Assyrian rule a few years earlier. The Syrians were no saints. And as their empire started to crumble, those spaces opened up again. And so Josiah, in the name of reclaiming the territory, went there. But also in the name of spiritual revival, said, let's wipe out what's here too. And those places are also places that were clearly under the reign of David and Solomon, the last king, the last two kings who ruled over united Israel. So even in that little picture, we might read that and say, well, why does he include those tribes? Those tribes is a glimmer of hope, of a renewed, a restored people of God. And then we see Josiah ended by coming back full circle. He comes back to Jerusalem, and that's ultimately going to set the stage for the next cleansing, the temple itself, but hold on to that thought till next week. We see that Josiah's activities, his campaign against sin and idolatry, it's extensive and exhaustive. And brothers and sisters, we are called to pursue similar campaigns in our own hearts, in our own families even here in our church family. We should be engaged in seeing sin cleansed, idolatry purged, and our flesh mortified. If we are truly, humbly seeking the Lord as Josiah did, we should find that same zeal that he had for the Lord and the right worship of his name. And maybe then this is where our hearts are the most exposed. Because maybe here is where we see a little bit of our own arrogance instead of humility. 
because we all have them. And the truth of the matter is, in our flesh, we have those altars that we have set up in our hearts to worship. The false gods of comfort, sensuality, pride, security, indulgence, pleasure, the list goes on. Those same false gods that Israel was so tempted and so plagued to follow throughout their history. And if we're honest with ourselves, we don't really want them smashed to the ground. We don't want them ground to dust and scattered. But this is exactly what we need. Israel could not exist with both and still maintain their faithfulness, and neither can we. We need a holy zeal to see, this, to see our sin and the places where it resides destroyed. And we also need a humility that sets God's holy standards as our standards outlined for us in his word as our highest aim, our highest pursuit. Because in them we find life. In them, we find true freedom. We need attitudes and activities like Josiah. But friends, I have bad news for you. None of us are this committed. Even on our best days, we cannot and will not purge our hearts like this. But thankfully, God in his infinite mercy and grace has given us Jesus Christ, a king, the king who is. He is the king who humbly sought his God at an early age when he took on our flesh. And he is the king who purged the sin and idolatry of his people by taking the guilt of it onto the cross and dying in their place. And then he is the king who has poured out his Holy Spirit into our hearts. The spirit whose job is to do what Josiah did here. To find the altars, to find the places of sin and to purge them, to destroy them. To make us holy. His job is your sanctification. God knows we can't do it in our own strength. And so he's given us a spirit who will help us do it. How good and gracious is he. So yes, be challenged by this. We need to be called to have this zeal. But also be encouraged. We have one who is right there with us. And more committed than we are. To see our sin purged. To see our evil cleansed. So struggle and stumble to humbly seek the Lord and battle against your sin. But have the promise that there's someone working far better than you are or ever will work to make you holy. And then eagerly and diligently seek and work to rid yourself of sin. That sin that so easily entangles. Those altars that we have still set up to worship the list of things that our fallen selves continue to grasp and gravitate towards. Again, the chronicler's purpose in including these two contrasting accounts of Amon and Josiah is ultimately to encourage faithfulness in the covenant people of God. And they would need faithfulness as they sought to return home and rebuild what was destroyed. They would need to be reminded to be faithful and not to repeat the idolatry and the wickedness of their forefathers. And brothers and sisters, while we're not exiles seeking to return home, we are exiles waiting for our Savior to bring us home. And as we wait, we need that same faithfulness 
that the post-exilic community of God needed. We need that same encouragement and warning. And so let us find it here in this picture of two contrasting kings separated by one generation. Let us be warned of the disaster that comes if we're arrogant and unrepentant. And let us also be encouraged to pursue the Lord in humility and meekness. And allow the Spirit to fill us with a zeal for holiness in our personal lives, in the lives of our family, and greater still in the lives of this church. Because faithfulness to the Lord starts by humbly seeking Him. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. God, even when you retell us the history of your people, you expose our own hearts. God, I pray first and foremost for myself that you would keep me humble before you. That I would live a life of daily repentance and confession. And that in doing so, you would produce in me a zeal for your name, a zeal for your worship. And I pray the same for my brothers and sisters. That we as a church, no, we wouldn't be perfect because we don't have that promise. But God, that we would be striving to be holy, to be more and more like our Savior, like our King Jesus. Who by your Spirit is at work right now to rid us of all the high places, of all the altars that still rest in our hearts and even rest in the hearts of, our, in the hearts of this church. Would you cleanse us? Would you purge us? We may worship you in spirit and in truth as you have called and enable us to do by your Holy Spirit. We pray for faithfulness. We pray for perseverance, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.